0: My ladies, gentles, in you come, and those who are neither, or or some. Come hither all, such tales to hear of misrule, magic, flight, and fear. Of things that unleash pandemonium, and heroes to defend us from them. And for those who thusly need inform me, in the show notes you'll find content warnings. So cautioned, audience, come with me, to the Pantaloon Society. Episode 10. Il Dottore. Hello? Oh, hello, Jen. Yes, my laptop's in front of me. Hmm. A ballerina? Not a clown, but uh, yes, it fits the pattern. Oh dear me, she, she was so young. The same age as you. Well, yes, ballerinas are usually quite short, so they can sometimes appear younger than they in fact are. And anyway, you are quite young compared to me. <laughs> no, I do not remember Queen Victoria. Now, tell me, how are you feeling? still having the nightmares. Hmm, I suppose that's to be expected. Did you call Helena? Yes, she can be a bit fluffy, but I think holistic therapies absolutely have their place in the modern medical repertoire. Sorry, getting overly clinical there. I thought someone warm and a little bit quirky would be a good match for you. But if you don't get on with Helena, I can always find you someone else. Alright, if you're happy to give it another try. And my door is always open if you want to talk to someone, you know? No, really, the hinges seized up in about 2009, and I keep forgetting to bring some lubricant down here. Yes, that's a good point. Joe probably has some. Thank you for the tip about Miss... uh, Foster, the ballerina. I will add it to the ever-increasing case file. Yes, you look after yourself. Toodaloo. (sighs) Dr. Harrington leaned back in her chair and took a sip of tea. It was loose-leaf Assam, and it was from Harrods, and it had, alas, already gone cold. But Dr. Harrington had spent many years working in the NHS, so she drank it anyway. Something was nagging at her, at the back of her mind. Something Jen had said. What was it? Something about... ages. She looked at the article about the deceased ballerina Jen had directed her to. Stapped, of course, and checked her age, the same age as Jen. Nothing to indicate that the victim had a present, but that sort of thing would require more digging, and probably a phone call to the grieving family, unfortunately. It wasn't a name she recognised as an old society family, either. She opened the folder containing the other case files and looked for ones with ages or dates of birth. All the victims were the same age. She reached for her phone. Hello, uh, it's Veronica Harrington and the Pantaloon Society. Yes, we're still working on the case. No, nothing yet, I'm afraid. Have you had anything useful from the police? I see. Well, I'm very sorry to bother you at what must be a difficult time, but could I ask for Lucy's date of birth? Thank you. Yes, I'm looking for a pattern that might connect the killings. Yes, I really hope so. Again, my deepest condolences to you and your family. hmm Goodbye. All the same age, We'll have presents, probably. It's got to be something to do with that. Who would want to murder people with presents, all of a certain age? Now, I'm asking the wrong question. Not why, but how. Who would know to murder people with presents? Even we don't know how to find each other. If we did, recruiting performers wouldn't be so difficult these days. Wait. Recruiting? Dr. Harrington shoved her chair back forty quickly and enthusiastically for a woman of her age who had been sitting still for several hours. She then had to take a second to allow her back to recover, before she could get out of it. Once she had composed herself, she hurried into the library, and then paused again, trying to remember where to find what she was looking for. She scanned down the rickety metal shelves and eventually found a large, heavy book and pulled it down. She had forgotten just how heavy it was, or perhaps it was just that the last time she'd handled it, she'd been younger and stronger. She carried it through to the office and put it down on the old manager's desk, brushing dust off the cover to reveal the design of a compass embossed on the brown leather. It had once been picked out in silver leaf, most of which had rubbed off from years of handling and more years of neglect. The spine cracked as she opened the cover. The first page was covered in faded cursive writing. Oh dear, what did this say again? My Italian is so rusty. Uh, I, Gostanza di Trivento, by the will of God, in this year of our Lord, illegible, leave this compass, guide the trousers. Uh, no, uh, guide the pantaloons. That name must have seemed particularly funny to them. Uh, shall find, uh, discover, locate. Uh, next part, illegible. Young and strong, wherever they may be, uh, illegible, uh, recruited to our great purpose, a legacy, a shield against the darkness. Uh, That's right, I remember now. The blasted things for finding young recruits for the society. Alright, we're getting somewhere. Now, who had it last? Much like the Enchiridion, the Book of the Compass began in ancient and crackling paper, and had over the years been extended, rebound, and extended some more. Unlike the Enchiridion, to which she had added leaves herself recently, the newest paper in the book was from the late 1980s, or so it appeared from the last entries. She leafed through pages covered in carefully written entries, the handwriting getting less looped and flowing as the centuries progressed. Dates, names, occupations, locations, row after row. 1592 Dauphine Felix, Jongleuse, Picardie. 1753 Peter Eriksson, Tenzer, Schleswig Holstein. 1842 Alexandru Bipescu, poet. Turgoviste. 1972, Veronica Harrington, medical student. 1972, Leonora Harrington, student. Oh, Nora. The years had been long enough now that Veronica Harrington could remember the day her little sister had come home with fondness, and only a hint of old grief. Her parents had tried for another baby for a long time, and almost given up before Nora came along. Veronica had therefore been old enough to understand the new baby was a thing to be careful with, not a toy. Old enough even to help look after her. She had fed her and rocked her when she cried, and even once or twice changed her. Veronica would make an excellent little mother one day, her father had said. She had swelled with pride. He had been correct, she supposed, in some way. Veronica had cared for hundreds of children over the years, although somehow the necessary steps to produce her own had never been particularly interesting to her. Never the time for, or really the interest in, romance. Men were um, colleagues, friends, comrades, but there was nothing about them that caught her attention in that way. She was not even certain romance was something she was capable of. And honestly, her life did not seem particularly lacking without it. Nora was the darling of the family, both immediate and extended. Her grandparents seemed to visit all the time, as did various aunts and uncles. Those visits dried up, though, when she'd become ill. It began before she was one year old. First, she seemed to sleep a lot, especially after feeding and her nails grew in a strange way, curved towards the fingers. Then the crying and fainting spells began. Nora would turn blue, struggle for breath, and sometimes lose consciousness. Today, with the benefit of her years of medical training, Dr. Harrington would have recognised it immediately. Tetralogy of Fallot. Nora's heart had not developed properly in the womb, and could not deliver enough oxygen to her body. As a child, Veronica only knew that her little sister was very ill. The family took Nora to the best doctors they could afford, and learned that without a recently developed surgical procedure, it was unlikely she would survive past her first year. Her mother came home from the doctors weeping, and did not leave her room for the rest of the day. Her father awkwardly tried to explain the situation, but failed, near to tears himself, but tried to keep a stiff upper lip. The family, she had relied upon for support all her life, seemed to be crumbling away, and she had felt so helpless. Her baby sister was crying, but her distraught mother was not going to her. Veronica went into her little sister's room where she lay, struggling for breath, and already beginning to turn blue. She wasn't tall enough to reach into the cot and lift her out to hold her, but she tried to attract the baby's attention and began to play one of the oldest games in existence, peek-a-boo. She hid her face and waited. The baby continued crying. She revealed it. The baby continued crying and choking. She wished, desperately, there was something she could do to relieve her little sister's distress. Deep inside her, Something awoke. She reached out with her hand through the bars of the cot as she reached out with her mind, feeling the little girl's irregular, fluttering heartbeat and soothing it. She hid her face again, and took her hands away to reveal it. The baby stopped crying, and took a deep breath. And then she laughed. A tiny, tinkling chuckle like silver bells. Veronica sighed in relief and sagged against the side of the cot, feeling drained, as if something had been pulled out of her. But her sister's tear-stained face was flushing a healthy pink, and that was all that mattered. She slid down to the floor by the cot, and that was where her parents found her asleep. They whispered to each other about how much Veronica must love her little sister to stay with her like that. Nora was scheduled for the surgery as soon as possible. Veronica and her parents waited in the hospital, her father once again trying to be strong, but very pale, and her mother silent and frightened, clinging to her husband. Her husband. Veronica did not cling to anyone, but instead tried to distract her parents by playing with their clown dolls in front of them and asking them to join in. She had run out of ideas for games and switched to quietly reading a book. By the time the doctor came out, informed the family that the surgery had been a success. Her mother burst into tears again, and her father held her close and dabbed at his eyes with a handkerchief, before handing it to her mother. The doctor turned to Veronica and spoke directly to her, saying her little sister was doing well, and would hopefully be much better soon. Veronica nodded, He crouched down next to her and asked her about her book. She explained what she was reading. He asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. She told him she wanted to be a heart doctor like him and help sick children like her sister. He seemed pleased. Her father asked her if she meant that. She nodded, although when she thought about it, she realised she'd been saying it to please the kind doctor. Her father said that it wasn't really a job for girls. The doctor disagreed and spoke about his woman colleagues and the work they were doing and the importance of women doctors. Her father seemed uncertain, but looked at her with new eyes. That was enough to cement the idea in her mind. The operation had indeed been a success. As Nora recovered in hospital, and then at home, Veronica played with her often, and made her laugh. And the laughter was healing, although it always exhausted Veronica to help her sister like that. Nora's symptoms resolved, and she began to grow strong, and Veronica became less concerned for her and her parents and found herself able to think about the life ahead of her. As was normal for girls of her age in class at the time, whose parents were in possession of sufficient wealth and privilege, she was sent away to boarding school. Girls at school were not encouraged to study the sciences beyond the basics, but nevertheless, she found medicine fascinating. However, as she discovered, she also loved to act. She played Sir Andrew a in the school's production of Twelfth Night, and had the audience in stitches, Peacock strutting about the stage. She had already begun to grow long-limbed and thin like her father, how wonderful it would be, she thought, to be both an actor and a doctor. But she learned very quickly that if she was to be taken seriously in the sciences, she would have to neglect the arts. Supportive teachers helped her study for the exams to get into Oxford, but frowned upon any time taken away from that studying for amateur dramatics, particularly as Veronica favoured the less serious parts. The happy day came when she received her acceptance at the university. Her mother cried again and said she wasn't sure how she would cope without Veronica around, and her father smiled a little, patted her on the shoulder, Said he was proud of her. They had a party when she came home for the summer, and the relatives, who'd been curiously absent when Nora was ill, returned to eat strawberries and cream and praise her parents for raising such a smart and clever girl. Nora sat quietly in the corner, smiling occasionally but looking tired. When she had a spare moment amidst all the congratulations, Veronica sat on the chair next to her sister and asked if she was feeling alright. Nora said she was just a little warm. Veronica asked if she wanted to go inside. Nora smiled and asked her to stop worrying. Veronica would have plenty of people to look after soon enough. Veronica reminded Nora about how she'd used to follow her around the house, and said she would miss it. Perhaps Nora could pop up and trail around after her on ward rounds sometimes. Nora laughed, and Veronica felt that old tug as the strength was drawn out of her and her sister. Suddenly energetic, stood and hugged her, and said she was so proud, and happily requested a dance. They spun each other around on the grass outside their house in the summer afternoon, only stopping for lemonade when Nora became exhausted again. In the autumn, Veronica went to Oxford. Partway through the semester, her college tutor called her out of her lecture, saying her father had telephoned. Nora had collapsed at school. A stroke. She had been dead before she reached the hospital. Obviously, Veronica would be given compassionate leave to go home at once to be with her family. She stared blankly into space all through the train ride, wondering if she could have done anything. If she had missed something, but concluded that no, she could not have. Veronica had taught herself to be sensible and reasonable, and she had read enough about her sister's heart condition already, to know that even with the surgical repair, even years later, there had been the risk of complications like this. As usual, she had to be strong for her mother, who started crying again the minute she got home. Her father seemed to be similarly in a daze, and muttered something about how sudden it all was, several times. It was easier to help organise things than to talk about Nora being gone. Between her and her father, they found the details of the funeral director her father had used when her grandmother passed away, and made the arrangements. The funeral went by in a hazy blur of friends, family, and finger buffet, and even one of her friends from her college at Oxford came down to visit, for which she thanked her profusely. Her mother never seemed to stop crying for very long. Veronica made no attempt to return to her studies, assuming she was needed, but after a few days her father awkwardly suggested that he could deal with things back here she had missed enough classes already. He absent-mindedly called her old chap before he saw her off at the station. She tried to return to her books and lectures but struggled to focus. She reassessed her life as people so often do in response to death. Was this what she truly wanted now that Nora was gone? Yes, of course. There were still children like Nora who needed a doctor who would care and understand as she did. She couldn't let everyone down now. But that was no longer enough. Something was missing, and that something was laughter and fun. Life was fragile, and if she spent it working and nothing else, she knew she would become old before her time. Remembering the plays of her school days with fondness, she found herself an amateur dramatics group, which Oxford was not short of. She requested the roles with the heaviest makeup and the strangest outfits, though. It helped to get out of herself, to become someone else, and leave the stresses and strains of medical training behind. Throughout her degree and beyond, it was her outlet, the place she went to relax. She was happiest around Christmas, pantomime season, when she would spend December playing an ugly sister, or a fairy, or once or twice even Aladdin. One Christmas after she qualified as a doctor, she was waiting in the dressing room for her next cue, checking her makeup in the mirror. That year's widow Twanky, a middle-aged man who wore horrible suits with multicolored pocket squares when not in an enormous wig, offered her a cigarette. She refused, saying she did not smoke but despite the polite rebuff, he struck up a conversation. When he made coy references to things that couldn't be talked about, she assumed he had mistaken her for a lesbian. It would not have been the first time, but it transpired he was in fact a pantaloon performer. His name was Raymond Phillips, but he preferred to be known as Dolly, and once he had checked to see if anyone was watching, he showed her his present. He could change his face to look like anyone he liked. He made himself appear to be a selection of American film stars, one after the other, much to her delight. It made him a tidy sideline in celebrity impersonation, he said. Raymond recruited her into the society, initially as an on-call doctor, whose discretion could be relied upon. But over time, she became more and more involved. She felt like she was leading a triple life, part doctor, part actor, part pantaloon performer. For many years, she did not get anywhere near enough sleep. This was the wrong part of the book of the compass, she realised now. This was the record of people the compass has found. She needed the record of keepers of the compass those people who had been able to master the knack of using it to find people. She herself had never been able to. She had tried, but the needle eluded her, slipping out of her mind's grasp like a silvery eel through her fingers. She flicked through the old pages of the Keepers, starting with the flourishing signature of Costanza herself, through the ages, to the final name on the list. 1981. Angela Ballatro Oh, yes, of course. Poor dear Angela. Had she somehow finally forgotten? Of course, Angela had been the last person to hold the compass, apart from whoever was using it now. Her tiny fingers had cupped around it so tightly, and for some reason she always blew on it to get the needle moving. To warn it, she needed to use it, she said. Angela Bellarcho had been born to an old Neapolitan family long associated with stage and screen. Her father had been a film star who still occasionally played cameo roles, her mother and brother were trained opera singers, and her aunt had been for many years a manager of the Teatro di San Carlo. Angela would relate stories of divas and disasters her aunt had told her, always having to stop for breath because she had made herself laugh. Angela was a ballerina, a delicate and bright little creature who still moved like a darting bird. Now Veronica looked back on it, with 40 years of perspective, she wondered if she'd been a little in love with Angela. The whole time they were partners in the society, it had been hard for Veronica to take her eyes off her. But this was not unusual. Men were always sending her flowers or drinks at bars. Some of them she went home with. Angela's career as a prima ballerina had been cut short by an injury after she moved to London. But she still danced quite well and taught lessons whenever she was not working for the society. Her present was one that had apparently been passed down in her family several of her ancestors had been pantomime performers in the 17th and 18th centuries. It was very destructive and dangerous, a scream that could shatter stone, and she did not like to use it unless absolutely necessary. She once told Veronica that she had realised what she could do when she was very young, and had destroyed one of her brother's toys when she was angry with him. She had refused to speak or make any sound for weeks afterwards, and subsequently had focused on dancing instead of singing, although she had a beautiful, soft voice, because her feet could not harm anyone. In the end, her voice had been the death of her. They had been in the east end, somewhere in the docklands, looking for what had turned out in the end to be nothing supernatural at all, simply a criminal enterprise using a circus as a cover for gun relief. Unfortunately, the guns had guards, serious men who knew how to use those guns. Angela and Veronica were forced to flee, but were cornered in an alleyway. In a panic, Angela screamed and brought a fire escape down on their pursuers, but was caught by falling debris herself. Neither Veronica's present, nor her medical skills would save her, and Angela had died in her arms, bleeding out on the cobbles. Angela's death was hard, almost as hard as Nora's had been, although once again she knew in her heart there was nothing more she could have done. She flew to Naples for the funeral, carrying Angela's things to be returned to her family. She told them they had been flatmates in London. Perhaps she could have explained about the society, how she considered it. But secrecy was 2nd nature to her by then. She shook the film's star father's hand and introduced herself to the brother, Who at that point was doing his military service, but had been allowed compassionate leave to return for the funeral. He was stiffly polite and gracious. She met the manager aunt and repeated some of the stories Angela had told back to her. The aunt wept and blessed her in English and Italian, and Angela's parents insisted she stay with them at their townhouse. She had stayed in Angela's old room, among her posters and outgrown ballet shoes. It was comforting to be among her things, as if the ghost of Angela's younger self was keeping Veronica company. There, she finally cried. Partly in grief, and partly in guilt. When she returned to England, Veronica took some time away from pantaloon society work and poured herself into her day job, returning to full-time work at the children's hospital rather than bank shifts. She realised that must have been why she had forgotten that Angela had been the last compass keeper. She must have missed the furore and the search for it. Angela must either have had it on her, or hidden somewhere safe, in a location now lost to time until the clown killer had found it. For many years, she did not return to clowning, acting, or the pantaloon society. Then, in 1998, on the insistence of one of the nurses she worked with, she went to see the film Patch Adams. Old memories surfaced, and she suddenly missed everything she had left behind. Times had changed, she realised. Now, perhaps, at last, she could be both sides of herself. She wrote to the Gesundheit Institute for more information, and went to the board of the Children's Hospital with a proposal to bring clown care to the institution. The response was far better than she expected, and by the time she retired and returned to occasional bank shifts, the hospital clowning was well established. She even turned up herself as a clown occasionally, no longer making a secret of her other life. She also returned to working for the society, in a purely administrative capacity, of course. She was too old to go pursuing supernatural threats anymore. Something was nagging at her. She had been reminded of something. She flicked back to the page with Angela's name on it. There was a name next to her old partners. Crossed out. Yes. Yes, it must be. That would make perfect sense. Hello? Joe? Oh, blast. Answer phone. Uh, Joe, uh, this is very important. I've worked out who the clown killer is. He's got the compass. That's how he can find his victims. It's a flicker out of the corner of her eye. At the door of the office, something moved. Well, that's deeply ironic. Almost poetic, really. Just as I work out who you are, here you are. uh, To kill me, presumably. I suppose you must blame me for Angela? Uh, That's understandable. Uh, But why are you killing the others? Uh, The young people with presents? No, I suppose you're too clever for a villainous monologue, aren't you? Silly of me. Look, for what it's worth, I'm sorry. I am. For everything. I don't suppose there's any chance I can persuade you not to keep... Pantaloon Society is a Cytogram Hair production by Lou Sutcliffe, AM Pronouns, distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. This episode uses sounds from Freesound.org. For full accreditation, content warnings and transcripts, please see the show notes. To be kept up to date on the show, please do follow on Twitter at Pantaloonsorg. Farewell, dear audience, and thank you for listening.